Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 28th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I had long hoped to do a basic beginner-type series explaining our Christian identity, an attitude towards and understanding of our scriptures. And the other day I had a conversation with Sven Longshanks of RadioArian.com. Sven is a good friend and we've done many podcasts together in the past. And when I ran this idea by him, he he, he wanted to um, or, or quickly offered to and, and was eager to accompany me. So here we are with Bible Basics Part 1 with Sven Longshanks. And as we spoke, Sven thought that our first discussion should be about some of the archaeology, which proves that the Bible is true. That is actually a fairly vast field about which we could potentially go into much depth. So here we will try to offer a more general survey of the topic, simply to establish that the historical portions of our scriptures certainly are verified by a plethora of archaeological records which have been discovered over the past 150 years. Sven, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me on once again, Bill. Uh, yeah, I do think this is a great a great topic. And as you say, that you know, the first thing that needs to be done is is proving that the Bible is accurate, that it's an accurate record of history. And I think there's a lot in archaeology that people just aren't aware of, particularly because of the criticism that's been leveled at the Bible over the last 200 years. Particularly in Germany, the higher criticism, all those schools, they all began before archaeology really took off. As you said then, it's only been 150 years since we've had archaeology. It's only really been since 1870 onwards that they first started looking around in, in Palestine. And since then, they found Nineveh, they found what they think is Sodom and Gomorrah, um, out of, and, and even then they really haven't searched that much. Apparently that out of 6,000 sites surveyed in Palestine, only 200 have been excavated and only 29 to any extent. And I, I think the reason for that is because it, it, it proves a different, slightly different narrative to the Bible. It proves that the Bible is true, but it also proves that the people of the Bible were white which is what they don't want people to know. And I think the Jews also say, oh, we don't want people that to be disturbing uh, the remains of Jews. It's against our religion. And the reason for that is, is because they know that the, the people that they're going to dig up aren't going to be anything like today's Jews. So there's two and sides to it. And it's not against it. the religion at all. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not against the religion at all. Joseph died and asked his... his um descendants, his children, his sons, his successors, he asked them to bring his bones back to Palestine in the event that they could return back to Palestine. And they did. So they basically inter that they basically um disinterred Joseph's remains to bring him back to Palestine. That's a really good point. Uh, is that is a really good point. I mean they, they must have just made that up along with the Talmud. It's the, it's the same excuse that they use for um, why people can't go looking around in, in Germany in, in the supposed death camps where uh, thousands of Jews were supposed to have been buried. It's the same excuse. 
Um, but just going back to Joseph there, he was, I believe it was Abraham's cave in a field. Um, and a cave in a field is, is not really something that you would expect to find. Uh, I would suggest that, that that would have been a man-made cave as well. It would have been like a, a dolmen, which is what we still have in Britain today. We still have them all over Europe. They're uh, basically man-made caves. That's the only way you could you could describe it. You've got uh, three or four huge uprights. You only really need three upright stones with a with a capstone on the top, and that was the old European way of burying people. And you have a, a stone at the front that, that could be removed out of the way, and then you would put the bodies inside, and that was proof that you lived there. That was proof that it was your land. And we still have the, the remains of these, of these dolmens today. So the, the, the very fact that Abraham bought this, this cave in a field and, and he had a cave in a field and, and that was where, um, Joseph was taken to and the, and the rest of them were taken to, that provides a link with, um, European history, the, the history of the white man. Wherever the white man's been, he's, he's put up these structures. And there's, there's loads more to do with, um, megaliths in the Old Testament. I think I counted, there's over a dozen, verses that refer to standing stones, dolmens, or stone circles. And yet you talk to pagans today, they think, oh, it's an exclusively pagan thing, that is. Um, it's a European pagan thing. Well, no, it's not. It's, it's really only written about in the Old Testament. It's uh, Aryan, not... Um, Absolutely. And and the time of Christ, the, the customs also testify against the modern Jews that they really don't want us to disturb any bodies or tombs because they don't. They're afraid to find what's really inside them. That the, uh, all right, Christ was laid in a tomb above ground because when the flesh rots from the bones, which could take up to a year, then the bones are removed and placed into an ossuary. From the Latin word osso, I believe it is, for bone, right? And an ossuary was a large box where all of the family's bones were capped so that, you know, Christ, the, the gospel account says that Christ was laid in a tomb in which no one had ever been laid before because the family would purchase a tomb and reuse the tomb. They would lay dead family member after dead family member in there. And as soon as the bones were cleared of flesh, they would move those bones to an ossuary or a box, which held all the bones for the whole family, maybe for generations, if, if the family had been stable in, in one place for a long time. So, so the actual Israelite custom is that all of the bones of all of the deceased are disturbed and moved after they die or after they're buried. So the Jews are just lying. They always lie. <laughs> and, and nobody calls them on their lies. That, you know, that's one I hadn't, hadn't ever thought of before. But, you know, it, it's a good one. I, I think one of the proofs for um, Christianity is these, these ossuary boxes as well, and the, the names that were on them and the, some of the earlier symbols of the cross. But I know that um, one of the things we, we really wanted to talk about as well in the, in this episode is the books of Genesis and, and proving that they are truthful, because a lot of the time you hear that, oh, this was just oral histories and it was just by memory and Moses just wrote this down and he was the first person to write this down. So how could he be accurate when he's writing about things that took place 2000 years before him? 
Uh, and there is proof for this that the, what he was actually writing down was taken from uh, tablets, taken from clay tablets because of the way that it is written. Uh, Moses would have been writing on papyrus, but he must have had these actual clay tablets be- because of the way that they that they're put together. They have titles on them, they have numbering on them, and they have catch lines on them. And where it actually says these are the generations of what that is saying is that this is the history of it's telling you who owned that tablet and we get this information from again from recent archaeology from going into a place called ebla and finding all these clay tablets there and that that's the way that they were written they had this these these are the generations of and they worked out that that, that was telling you whose tablet it was and they also had a, a, a way of numbering them as well and they would actually date the tablet so when you read in the, in the bible and it says um and uh, uh joseph was dwelling by a well or whatever that 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 was actually dating when when the tablet was was written that was the place where he was and when it tells you Tirah lived 70 years it was saying that well he was 70 years when that tablet was written and th- these are all uh grammatical rules that the that they used back then when they were writing on these tablets and when they were actually putting the the Bible together, they weren't aware of this. So that's why sometimes you find verses that uh, repeat one another or or verses that appear to be slightly out of place in the first uh, few books of the Old Testament. Uh, And and that's why, because they weren't really aware of this when they they were translating it. And and Moses must have had these tablets that were, you know, 1500 years old, 2000 years old. I mean, when was, when was he writing? He, the, uh, he was writing about, um, 2000 BC, 1500 BC, and this actual style of writing dates right back to 3500 BC. So, right the, the there, way I look at this, the, the way I look at this, and, and what you're talking about, it is very good. It, it's actually called the Tolada theory. And, and that's because that word Tolada can mean descendants or generations or proceedings these are the proceed because your descendants are what proceed forth from you right what well proceedings in 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 a narrative manner is another meaning of the same word because of that related meaning right right so it's the tolada theory because that word tolada which can mean descendants, generations, or proceedings, appears very often in that context through Genesis, right? What we see that right in um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heaven and earth. Well, that word generations is the word tolada. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And, And then in Genesis chapter 5, what we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That word generations is also Tolada. So that could have been translated. This is the book, the, the book of the accounts of Adam. And as you're saying, the story which ensues is really not about Adam. It's about his descendants. So it becomes evident that Adam himself was the owner of the book, right? <laughs> And and that is how and and there was this um this phenomenon was first discovered by a British Air Force officer named Commodore P. J. Wiseman, 
who was also a student of antiquity and scripture. Yet, you know, like Sir Henry Rawlinson that translated the Behistun Rock, which we'll talk about a little later, he was an army officer, but he was also a student of antiquity and scripture and, and took it upon himself to inscribe that rock because he was an educated man. Well, Wiseman was actually present at some of the excavations conducted by famous archaeologists like Sir Leonard Woolley and, and Professor Stephen Langdon, other British and American archaeologists who were the original people to go digging around Palestine before archaeology was in the hands of the Jews in, in Palestine, right? And, and Mesopotamia. Well, well, Wiseman is the one, I believe, that first um, devised this hypothesis because of what he observed from the same construct used in other Mesopotamian inscriptions, which are as old as the time of Abraham. And these inscriptions use that same grammatical construction. This is the book of the Toledah or generations in the King James Version, of Adam to identify the ownership of scrolls or the origin of scrolls, but well, not necessarily, necessarily what's contained in the scroll. Well, that, that explains something for me as well there, if it's talking about the, the proceedings from, because I understood that, oh, this is the generations of the heavens and the earth to be, well, well this, is, this is the tablet that belongs to the to the heavens and the earth. But what he's really saying is that this is what came about from the heavens and the earth when uh, and the creation. Right. From the creation of the heavens and the earth. Next we have the the the, the um creation of the plants, the trees, and, and ultimately man. Yeah, right? That, that, yeah, I, so, I get so, that. I understand that now. What you the the way that you described it is what's described in the mainstream articles on the issue but the way that i'm describing it is just slightly different and it it results from um the exact same understanding but i, I i'm just able to slightly revise it this is the book of, of the proceedings of adam it, it's what proceeded what followed after adam in in genesis chapter 5 right but the point is this, and, and that these things, these records were actually at one time on tablets. They were preserved on tablets, and what we know as the book of Genesis is a compilation of these tablets, which was sort of um, taken by Moses and and. In, in a lot of places stitched together or recorded by Moses. And we can believe that Moses, quote-unquote, wrote the book of Genesis. And even Joshua Christ attributes Genesis to Moses. But Moses was only preserving older records which existed before him, which were on tablets. And the evidence for that is the use of this term, in the tablets of the surrounding nations, which shared the same culture, along with the fact that we have this story, like a fresh story starting 
right in the middle of Genesis, Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Well, okay, so this is a separate book. Well, well yes, because at one time, it was on a separate tablet all by itself. That explains why the name Yahweh does not appear in Genesis chapter 1. The name Yahweh does not appear until Genesis chapter 2. And actually Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, which just happens to be one of those places where we see that grammatical construct, these are the generations. So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 is actually a separate tablet or book from what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Yeah, there's three, three separate tablets there at the beginning, isn't it? That's why you get... Um, you know, right, and we have another new tablet that I'm certain starts at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. And another new one, which starts at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. And another new one at Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. And another new one for the descendants of Esau, the proceedings of Esau, at Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. And then Jacob at Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. The book of Genesis, as we know it, was actually at least seven different tablets at one time. And sometimes I've called these different scrolls, right? When in my explanations of this, that, that Genesis chapter two, verse four starts a different scroll. But I'm really persuaded that a copy of these tablets was maintained for a long time. And then they were copied onto scrolls to disseminate to the different synagogues throughout the land of Israel so that the scribes could read the laws to the people. That's my opinion. So it, it's fully formed. I just can't prove it all except by the customs of the time, right? I think the actual word for he Hebrew writing has something to do with, with carving into clay as well. And when you think about these, these tablets, tablets would last for years. That, that's why we can still find these, these ancient tablets when they dig these, uh, when they dig these cities up. They don't tend to find much parchment because that, that's going to rot. Whereas the stone tablets are going to last. So what you had there is you had eyewitness accounts carved into stone tablets that Moses had access to. There's no other way, no other reason why he would have been writing in, in such a way. So it gives proof to these earliest books that are some of the ones that um, Judeo-Christians seem to, you know, they don't take them seriously. And and a lot of people will just say, well, well, that's just just fantasy or it's been elaborated upon. But no, it's actually eyewitness accounts and family records. Like, like family trees, which were particularly important because you, you know, you needed to prove who you were, especially if you were of noble birth, of high birth, like, like these people were. That this was, this was their, their proof of that. So I think, you know, I think that's a, a, a really important proof to the, to these early books that, that you can give to people. So you can say, well, this, this is accurate. And this is also some of the earliest records that we've got of, of these sub, sort of subjects. And, and they all tie in together. And then, then we've got, um, other tablets that were being written around the time that also hint at some of the same, 
some of the same situations happening, some of the same legends. We've got things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. You've got um, fragments of the, the Enoch literature. Lots of other um, tablets which, which are talking about these same things, but, but they haven't continued on. What you've got with the Bible is you've got, you've got a continuous line from that time that goes right the way up to Christ with the same people recording the events. And the, these other epics, like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the, the Babylonian Flood, a, a lot of people will, will say, oh, well, this, this preceded uh, the, the Old Testament. These preceded that, and the Old Testament must have copied it. But there's no need for it to have been copied. It, it was people writing about the same events, but just being seen through different eyes, I would have thought. Is that what you would say to somebody that was, that was to question that bill, who was, who was to point out that um, the Babylonian flood epic supposedly was written before the uh, Old Testament? Well, well right. I, I don't... That can't be proven at all that the... Babylonian flood epic or, or the Babylonian creation epic or, or the, well, well, it's also called the Gilgamesh flood myth. I don't think that these things, that it can be proven that they were written before or after the Old Testament or, or, the, or at least the Torah, the books of Moses at all. I, I mean, some of it can. We have Sumerian legends that predate Moses or, or that seemingly even predate the time of Abraham, maybe around 2000 BC. And that's fine, but that doesn't discredit the Hebrew accounts at all. If you read these ancient flood myths and creation myths, it becomes apparent. Once you understand the Genesis story, that these things reflect a lot of the same things, and, and they have some new twists, but they reflect a lot of the same things that the scripture reflects, except that it's written from the, the opposing viewpoint, from the pagan viewpoint, or from the viewpoint of the bastard races that the Bible speaks about, like the Rephaim and the Kenites, and for instance, the Gilgamesh story, we have goddesses coming down from heaven and creating people on earth, which is a lot like the pagan Greek legends where um, Zeus would come down and from, from Olympus or from heaven and, and rape some woman who would subsequently give birth to another god. What these are, and, and we see this in Gilgamesh, and we see it in the Greek, the early Greek myths, what these are are elaborations or opposing views of the Genesis chapter 6 account, where, where the so-called sons of God, or in the better manuscript, sons of heaven, came down and went into the daughters of men. That's what you have there. So, to me, they don't disprove the Bible. They prove it. <laughs> they prove the scripture is true to a great extent. Well, you've got these mul multiple witnesses to the same event. And I would suggest also, that, you know, just with what we were saying there about, about um, the way that Moses was writing, it was quite clear that it was taken from tablets. Maybe when people are saying that the Babylonian epic was written beforehand, they're probably saying it because they're saying, well, that was written on tablets and, and Moses was writing on papyrus. 
but we've just shown there that they were they were taken from much earlier tablets so you know they could very well have been been written at the at the same time I, even even that argument doesn't doesn't disprove it and i do find the uh you know the, the gilgamesh epic and the, the stories about the the half animal half man that's uh tamed by the woman i, I do find all that stuff interesting it, it does t- sort of set what was happening at the time what what early white man white men were, were thinking about and the way that they understood the natural world around them now that was i guess was their science of, of their day was you know these gods and goddesses and myths because they, they weren't idiots they weren't just making up um fantasies i think they had a, a completely different way of of looking at the natural world than we do today everything we, we do today is very scientific everything is measured whereas back then i think they were and also i think probably think they were a lot more in touch with um the supernatural and with the heavens i mean we read in the in the old testament about angels walking about and talking to abraham and it was an age where angels interacted with men and we read about the angels interbreeding with men and then of course in these other books and records that we have from these other nations that were living around they're talking about god men and, and half god men creatures and this this was the early age of man this was the early age of adam on the earth and the as i say the the only one which continues right up to right up to the time of christ is 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 the bible that that's the accurate one that's that's the one that can be cross-referenced there are so many other parts to do with the bible that can be cross-referenced everywhere else and um, people just don't know about it. I think. Well, well there, there are many um, correlation, correlations between the scriptures. Once the scriptures are properly understood, and and the pagan legends. Oh, okay. In the scriptures, we have a fallen angel who's described as that old serpent. And the old serpent is the representative of an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we would assert are the non-Adamic races. And if you look at the Babylonian epics, uh, the Babylonian creation stories of Tiamat, Tiamat is described as a serpent or a dragon. So why wouldn't the... and, And Tiamat is the creator of their world so this is telling us exactly the same thing that the bible's telling us from an entirely different perspective because i would say that the serpent did create the other races and and that old world that the adam of the bible was built to was created to supplant that the adam of the bible was created to replace because the serpent had corrupted the old world. So to me, the Bible is telling me the same story as the Babylonian and older, the Babylonian myths came from the older Sumerian culture. Just like, and, and for that reason, that they're very similar to the Akkadian, or Akkadian is the language for the Assyrians, to the Assyrian myths, because they both came to a great extent from the older Sumerians. And the Sumerians are not a Genesis 10 nation. I can't really identify them with, with the families of Noah. 
So to me, this is the same story from the opposite perspective, from the perspective of the enemy. Didn't the Adamites supplant the Sumerians? And isn't that um, Akkadian? Didn't they supplant them and, and take over? And that, yes. that was when the Akkadian came in? Yes, the Akkadians. The Akkadian is actually named for one of the great cities of ancient, the, the ancient Assyrian Empire called um, Akkad, right? But Akkadian is the language which the Assyrians spoke. It's identified as Akkadian. But it shouldn't necessarily be identified with Sumerian. Sumer is an older culture in um, in what's known today as Babylonia. Now, now Sumer may be um, may be equated to the first Hamitic Empire of, of um. Nimrod, I'm sorry, Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, if we look at Nimrod, right, Nimrod was a great hunter, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kauna in the land of Shinar, and that land of Shinar is equivalent roughly to, to what we know as Babylonia and ancient Sumer, but it's my opinion, and I have, um, good archaeological evidence to base this on that Sumer had become Sumer as we know it from ancient history and archaeology had become a mixed race empire at an early time it was not entirely Adamic and and this is getting off of Bible basics because it's going to leave a lot of people confused un unless we understand it there were many other people on the on the earth already when Adam was created. Cain went out, and if if we look at the descriptions of Genesis chapter four, Cain went out from the Garden of Eden and built a city. Who did he build a city for? Cain found a wife and built a city after he was put out of the Garden of Eden, out of the presence of Adam and Eve, after he had killed Abel. So we have to understand that Adam was created by Yahweh God in a world that was already populated and corrupted. Jesus Christ says in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, he gives the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then the apostles asked him to explain it. And before he gives his explanation, he explains that he had come to utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So not only is the Genesis account a collection of tablets containing records from long before the time of Moses, it's also not a complete revelation of the creation of God and everything that happened between that creation and the creation of Adam. It's not, a cre it's not a complete revelation because Christ himself said that he came to reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world. And immediately after he says that, he gives the explanation of the wheat and the tares 
and says that the wheat, the field is the world, and, and the wheat were planted by the Son of Man, meaning by God, because the Son of Man is God come in the flesh. And the devil came along and sowed tares in the field. So where did the devil come from? We find in Revelation chapter 12 that that devil is the representative of the entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I see as a race of related people, different branches, right? And that is what Adam was sent here to supplant, but when he engaged with it instead, as it's described in Genesis chapter 3, he also fell into a state of sin. I don't know if that explanation fits into the <laughs> in, into the description of Bible basics, but that's about as basic. I, I mean, we'll cover that again in this series, but that's about as basic as I could present it right now. So we have other people on this planet the Garden of Eden is not the whole planet. The whole planet is not empty. And the Genesis account does not insist upon that. We have a race of fallen angels here before Adam was created. And that's some of the people that Cain built the city for. And, and they are the quote-unquote sons of God or sons of heaven that came down into the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. So we have their creation stories because they came from the serpent. And that's what we see reflected in these ancient Sumerian legends, which say that their creator was Tiamat, who's depicted as a female, a primordial female serpent. And she's the embodiment of primordial chaos. That is how early people saw their creation. Early people that weren't necessarily Adamic. Where the Hebrew Bible describes only the creation of our race, of the Adamic race, or the white race. And the forces of we order. Can, I, I was just, I said, we can establish it. I'm sorry, Sam. Go on. We can establish that Adam was white through the meaning of the word, the meaning of the term Adam, because it means ruddy, and that can be well demonstrated in Scripture, but also through the identification of the nations of Genesis chapter 10, which are the predecessors of the modern white nations, and they could all be traced and identified in history. Well, that's, a, that's another important point, that, and another one that um, bears out the, the truth of the Bible, is tra tracing back those nations. But I, I was just going to say, God is the force of order, and his Tiamat, his, his female serpent, is the force of, of chaos. Adam was the representative of order. And I think it is a part of Bible basics to explain that there were people on the earth as well as Adam. I think that is, you know, that's, that's quite an important point, and it is obvious when you look at what, what happened to Cain. So what you're saying is, and um, in Sumer, the, these people that were in Sumer, they, it was a multicultural empire. I, th I think that that fits in when it says that um, Nimrod and he set up the Tower of Babel. If part of his empire was was Akkad, that that was a part of it. So it all it all fits in together. And, and this is the uh, earliest records 
that we've got. And there's, there's proof for it elsewhere. And this worshipping of the serpent, I mean, it wasn't just uh, Tiamat. They also had that over in India as well. There's a lot of serpent worship there. And I think if we go back to a lot of the non-white races, if you go to South America, if you go to um, uh, New Zealand, go to Australia, they all talk about this, this serpent that, uh, that is where they come from. China, yeah, with the dragons. All the non Absolutely. All of the non-Adamic peoples worshipped the serpent. Yes, sir. And many attributed their origin to the serpent in their own myths. Well, and then and we've that got, serpent would be Tiamat. I was going to say, we also got the verse in, in Revelations where all peoples, nations, and tongues are spewing out from, from the serpent to try and drown the woman with child. So again, you've got the link there with the serpent and, and these other nations. The serpent sends a flood after the woman, representing the children of Israel and the 12 tribes. The serpent sends a flood after her to persecute her. And we interpret that as a reference to the other nations, the other races of people that are the flood from the mouth of the serpent. And, and we see that in history. What we can see the fulfillment of that throughout history from the time that white European nations accepted Christianity, they've been flooded first by, by the Muslims, by the Arabs, then by the Turks, and, and today by, by these um, international Jews who, who seek to overrun us with every sort of alien, wherever they could get them from, whether they're from Sudan or, or Pakistan is the material. So these are the flood from the mouth of the serpent who is appropriately identified with the international Jew. The Jew is only one manifestation of that serpent in history. And, and it's going to take a long time to get from here to there, but you really can't talk about the beginning unless you also speak about the end. You can't, because we don't have a full record in Genesis, because Jesus Christ said that he came to reveal things kept secret from the beginning of the world, we don't have a full understanding of what happened in Genesis until we get to the Revelation. Because that's the revelation is what Christ reveals, right? And, and chapter 12 explains the relationship with the serpent and the fallen angels and the seduction of Eve and, and what happened in Genesis chapter 6. And these people can be traced through scripture and history. In, in, um, in Genesis chapter 10, we see the nations which descended from Adam through Noah. A few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 15, we see tribes of the Canaanites listed in verses chapter, in verses 15, in verses 19 through 21. From Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21, we see the nations which dwell in the land given to Abraham. And we have Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Amorites. And if we compare that to Genesis chapter 10, we can see that they are all descendants of Canaan. 
They're all Canaanites or branches of the Canaanites. But along with them are Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Rephaim, and Girgashites, and, and people that did not descend from, from the Canaanites or, or from Genesis chapter 10, from Noah. These are alien people. And it can be established that those Kenites are the descendants of Cain. And the Rephaim are the giants. The word Rephaim means giants. The Rephaim are the giants who resulted from the events in Genesis chapter 6. There were at least a portion of those giants. Now, Gilgamesh in the Epic of Gilgamesh was said to be a giant. And Kidu, who was created by a goddess from heaven, according to the Epic of Gilgamesh, was also a giant. So what we have in, in these ancient inscriptions is the, the basically the same story that we have in scripture from the opposite perspective, from the perspective of the enemy. That's what we have. In, in the ancient pagan legends of Mesopotamia. That's the way I look at that, and that can be established in many different ways. Well, it's interesting there, you, you mentioned that uh, the, the just the modern manifestation of the serpent is, is the Jew, and then we can go back to the manifestation of the serpent back then, and it was the sons of Cain, and then you've got the manifestation of the serpent is the Canaanites and the tribes that uh, they are interbreeding with, and then the Israelites are told that they must exterminate those Canaanites. They must wipe them out completely, only they fail to wipe them out completely. But there are records of this of this happening with the Tel El Armana letters, more archaeology, more um, things that were dug up 130 years ago, which bear out the truth of this. And, we, and we've got letters that were written to the Egyptian pharaoh, I think it was Akhenaten or Amenophis, and they're begging this pharaoh for help against these invading tribes of Hebiru and Saka, both names which the Hebrews are, are called later on by by the Assyrians. So we've got proof going back to then, to the time of Joshua, when he's when he's going into these areas of the people that were actually living there, these Canaanites begging for help from Egypt and, and Egypt refusing to help, which, you know, it shows you how powerful these, these Israelites were if, if the Egyptians did, did not want to help. I mean, shortly after that, you've got, you know, you've got the Israelite empire that starts. This is when they were obeying God. And you've got Palmyra that's built by Solomon. But, you know, the, these Tal Armana letters, they, they bear out, again, some of this earliest history that we read about in the Bible is confirmed for us by the archaeology. Well, well absolutely. And and before we get in, well, we'll speak about the Amarna letters in, in a moment. There, there are so many people that doubt the historicity of the Exodus and the historicity of Moses himself. But we could go two-thirds of the way back, or, or at least, let me say, 60 to 70% of the way back in time and see that very noted men, most of them pagan, had accepted the accounts of Moses and the Exodus as being historical in nature 
as being absolutely historical. And, and these are the Judean Flavius Josephus. Now, you could say he's biased because he's a Judean, right? Of course, he's going to support the Bible, right? We could say that. But the other two, two of the others, the pagan Greek writer Strabo of Cappadocia, who was a noted historian and a geographer of the first century BC to, to about 25 AD when he is believed to have died. And then there's Diodorus Siculus, who was a Roman, a pagan Roman historian of the time of Julius Caesar, who probably died shortly after 37 BC when his history ends, right? Diodorus Siculus was a very learned man. He took all of the historical writings that he could get his hands on, the works of hundreds of older writers, and compiled them into what he called a library of history so that he could present all of ancient history in a single narrative up to his own time. And he started with the earliest legends and went all the way up to his own time, from, from before the fall of Troy to his own time. So, we have Flavius Josephus, Strabo of Cappadocia, and Diodorus Siculus, all writing in the 1st century BC or the late 1st century AD in Josephus's case, all accepted Moses and that entire account of the Exodus to be historical. And Josephus quoted often from a pagan Egyptian writer of the 3rd century BC named Manetho, who also accepted Moses and the Exodus account as being historical, and correctly dated it to the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty, whom Josephus called Tuthmosis, which is also correct as we, as far as we can determine from biblical history and chronology. And then Diodorus Siculus, he took portions of his account of Moses in the Exodus from another pagan Greek writer named Hecatahius of Abdera, who lived in the 4th century BC. So the story of Moses, the accounts in scripture, might be 3,500 years old. They certainly are. But we can go back 2,400 years, just about, and people, learned men, 2,400 years ago, accepted those stories of Moses and the Exodus to be true. I've never seen an ancient writer doubt them. That didn't happen, as you said, until the Jewish higher critics of 18th century Germany, right? 19th century Germany. <laughs> That's yeah. when that started to happen. I can remember so, reading, um, I guess I, I can remember reading in, in Against Apion, I think it was, written by Flavius Josephus, and he, and he lists all these people that, um, you know, they're, they're not Judeans. A lot of them are actually anti-Judeans, but, but they, they did accept that all this history was true. And he, and he goes through all, all these much older people that we, we no longer actually have records of what, of what they had written. But the fact that, um, you know, he wasn't questioned on it at the time and these records were known to the people, then, you know, it, ha it has to be accurate. 
There's, there's no way that I you mean, can really doubt it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Diodor Siculus and Strabo of Cappadocia but were among the most respected historians of antiquity. That's why their works were preserved and a lot of others were lost that we no longer have. So, that's important to understand. Once we get to the Tel Elamarna letters to, to, um, to the Egyptian pharaoh, the, the Jews are always trying to pervert the Bible. They're always trying to pervert the archaeological interpretations in, in order to help make us think that the Old Testament Israelites were Jews. <laughs> so many of them either deny that the Exodus really existed, the Jews do, or they attempt to place it at a much later time than it originally happened. So there's always academic quarrels over the Pharaoh and the time of the Exodus. But there should really be no quarrel at all once you follow the most ancient writers and learn that the Exodus was in the 18th dynasty in the times of Tuthmosis. Now, there were four pharaohs named Tuthmosis, and, and we could get to that in a moment. But what's important is that that's when the Exodus happened. That's when the most ancient writers said that it happened. And one of the contentions over the Exodus account attempts to explain that the reference to the Habiru in the Tel Elamana letters is really a reference to slaves, to a class of people rather than a tribe of people. And, and that could easily be argued against because that only proves scripture even further rather than disproving it. These Tel Elamana letters were appeals written to Akhenaten. Akhenaten was a 19th dynasty pharaoh. These, um, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Akhenaten was a late 18th dynasty pharaoh. And these appeals in the Tel El Amarna letters were made to Akhenaten by the various kings of the land of Canaan that the Israelites were conquering in the time of Joshua and pushing out. And they were begging him for his assistance in defending against them, and he, he ignored them. He, he virtually ignored them. He never answered them. So this also verifies that the... um that the Exodus really happened because perhaps a hundred years after the Exodus, these kings in Canaan are writing to Egypt begging for help against the invading Hapiru. Now, these Jewish scholars argue that the Hapiru is Hapiru is only a reference to slaves or robbers. Well, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt for several generations, so it's only natural that the name Hebrew became synonymous with slave. Well, wouldn't you think, why did the word Slav become synonymous with slave? Because in medieval England, the Normans and the Vikings were selling Slavs as slaves. That's why we got the word slave. The word Slav became synonymous with slave. So why didn't that happen 3,500 years ago and the word Hebrew become synonymous with slave? It proves the, <laughs> that the scripture is true.
Think the, uh, uh, I have now. Yeah, I was going to say, I, th- I think the, the Welsh, uh, called the Welsh because the Anglo-Saxons enslaved them. And the Anglo-Saxon word for slave was Welsh. So it's, well, it, you know, it happens quite a lot. Yes. Yeah, well, well, today in modern America, I, I mean, nigger is synonymous with slaves because the niggers were slaves. So it happens all the time. It, it's a cultural identification, and it helps to prove that the Bible is true. The Hebrews also had no land of their own. It's evident if you study Genesis chapter 10 and identify all of the nations of Genesis chapter 10 properly in ancient history, almost, almost, not quite all of them, but almost all of them can be um, equated with a particular land that we know from ancient history. For instance, wherever Persia appears in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Elam, and we know where the word where, where the land of Elam was, it's described by the Greeks. It's in modern Iraq, in a district next to the Persian Gulf, just the other side of the Tigris River. And that's where the Greeks identified it. And that's why Persia is Elam throughout Scripture. So the, the Medes are Madai, and the Thracians are Tyrus in, 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 um, in Genesis chapter 10. Well, Arphaxad, we get to Arphaxad, and we can't identify any ancient land with any certainty at all with Arphaxad. None. So it's evident that the Hebrews, being descended from Arphaxad, must have been displaced from their possessions at a very early time. Abraham and his fathers dwelt in a land that in Genesis was associated with Aram. Padanaram. Padanaram in Hebrew means plain of Adam, uh, of Aram. That's what it means, Padanaram, plain of Aram. So we see that Abraham was from a land that is identified with Aram and not with his own ancestor, Arphaxad. So the Hebrews being dispossessed, naturally they would be outlaws or robbers. And the Hebrews in Egypt, the Israelites, were slaves. So all of these arguments of the Jews about this word Habiru in the ancient inscriptions, none of them hold up. And they help to prove our case, not to disprove it. Flavius Josephus and an honest study of the chronology of the period inform us that an 18th dynasty pharaoh named Tuthmos, whom Josephus calls Tethmosis, was the pharaoh of the Exodus. And while there were four pharaohs by this name, and Hatshepsut also was in a mix, a, a female who ruled for about 20 years, and it is very likely she who drew Moses out of the water, thereby giving him a form of her family name, that the 6th and 8th dynasties of the 18th dynasty were Pharaohs Tuthmos III and Tuthmos IV. And after the death of one more Tuthmos, who never became Pharaoh, we saw the, accent- the ascension of his brother, Akhenaten. And when we understand that Tuthmos III 
ruled for a very long time and that he was the pharaoh of the Exodus, then we can understand that that the timing between Tutmos and the Exodus and the time when the tribes of Israel are invading Canaan under Joshua is the same amount of time between the Tuthmos pharaohs and, and the ascension of Akhenaten that all of the chronology falls right into place for the Telamana letters to be a true um, depiction of the invasion of the Hebrews into the land of Canaan, and they're called Hapiru. So, so this that there is here absolute historical and archaeological proof of the circumstances of the children of Israel after the Exodus. Now, apparently they were referred to as Saka as well in these Tel El Armana letters, and then they're still being referred to as Saka and as Hibiru in, in the Behistun rock much later on. But I was just thinking there, Bill, when you were talking about um, being able to trace back the, the nations and knowing which land they went to and how that bit that um, gives proof to the Bible, just the word Caucasian does, because Noah's Ark supposedly landed in Mount Ararat, and that's in the Caucasian mountains. And all these theories that talk about the, um, you know, the, the Aryan migrations, they all say all the Aryans came from the Caucasus. Well, that's the same story that we've got in the Bible, that the sons of Noah came down from the Caucasus and colonized all these various areas. That's where, we, that's where we get our name from, Caucasian. The Bible tells us the same story, that it, it, we all originated in, in that same area. And that's what they talk about when they say the north. They mean the north, as in the Caucasian mountains, that north. The, the name was popularized, the name Caucasian was popularized by, by the learned men of the 19th century to describe our race who understood that we came from that area. And, and that we migrated from Mesopotamia and, and the Levant and the area of the Caucasus Mountains through the Caucasus Mountains and, and into Europe. They understood that. And, and that was basically not even disputed until the, um, the Jews came to dominate American and European academics in, in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And we're still called Caucasians in spite of that, because we came through the Caucasus Mountains. I think we passed through there a few times, didn't we? I mean, there, there is a, a later incident, and there's, a, there's the Israel Pass there when the Israelites supposedly went through there as well as um, before then in these in these first migrations. But just, you know, I've read some of the books from the um, 19th century, 18th century, 19th century, and they talk about the, the Shemidae, uh, meaning the sons of Shem, and they, and they talk about the Noahidae, meaning, meaning the sons of Noah. And in all of these books, it's taken for granted that, that that's who we're descended from. They think we're descended from Japheth. But even if you think we're descended from Japheth, it still means that his, that his two brothers... Ham and Shem were both white. They could only be white. Well, well, you know that the um, earliest white European nations, those that bordered the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea in the south of Europe, 
um, namely the Thracians and the Slavic peoples of Meshek and Tobol. They are the precursors of a lot of the Slavs, at least, and the Ionian Greeks and the um, Tartesians of Iberia and a few other smaller tribes, they are Japhethites. And the Medes, the Medes of, of um, the area bordering Armenia on the Caspian Sea, what we would know today as northern parts of northern Iraq, they were descendants of Japheth. And they can all be identified. And, and it's all um, very clear in ancient history and in the spellings of those names in the Hebrew language as well as quite often the English that those are the precursors of the earliest modern white European nations. Now, they were followed by waves of Syrians and Phoenicians who settled among them and, and other tribes such as the Dorian Greeks who settled among them from um, and the Danan Greeks from about the 16th century BC and down through maybe the time of David and Solomon. And it could be established historically that those people, for the most part, came from the children of Israel who were either departing from Egypt at the time of the Exodus and sailed across the sea instead of going with Moses. And, and that's the account that Diodorus Siculus gives us from the writings of Hecatahius of Abdera from the 4th century BC, or who had left Palestine after the conquest of Palestine by Joshua in, in the centuries after that, after the children of Israel had taken over the area which we know as Phoenicia. And, and the Jews try to deny that the Israelites ever inhabited Phoenicia. But the Bible, the actual text of the Bible, proves beyond all doubt that the historical Phoenicians of the golden age of Phoenicia were Israelites, as were the Dorian Greeks, which are the Spartans and the Corinthians and, and opposed to the Athenian Greeks or the Ionian Greeks, which are Japhethites. And we see this reflected later in the letters of Paul, throughout the letters of Paul and the book of Acts. Well, I think this so is Europe, Europe was settled in three major waves, I, I would say. The first what was a Japhethite wave, and the second was the, an Israelite Phoenician wave. And the Phoenicians by Strabo were considered the most powerful people of Europe, the Phoenicians in the West, that they inhabited Ireland, they inhabited Britain, and, and they inhabited Iberia, as well as Carthage. Strabo didn't call them the most popular people of the Mediterranean. Strabo didn't call them the most powerful people of Africa. Strabo called them the most powerful people of Europe. 
imagining them to to have full control of of Western Europe at the time that he was writing. He was writing of a period earlier than the Punic Wars. The the um the third wave would be the Germanic wave, which were the descendants of the children of Israel of the Assyrian deportations, who were called Scythians and Sake and and Chimerians. That um, first Phoenician one, I think that that's one that that people don't really quite understand. They don't realise that the, the Phoenicia was taken over by Israel, was taken over by Joshua. Tyre and Sidon were, you know, they they were full of Israelites. When you hear Solomon uh, talking to the king of Tyre and, and getting all his building materials and and people from there, that's because they were Israelite areas, and that's that's when we hear about the Phoenician Empire taking off it, it, there was never any anything really going on there before then the golden age of the phoenician empire all took place after it it had been taken over so when you when people are reading and they say oh well i, I haven't read anything about an israelite empire but everyone's read about the phoenicians and that that was the first real israelite empire i would say and and when you look at um uh, palmyra that's just built in the north of Syria. That was the extent of the Israelite empire. Josephus writes that Palmyra was built by Solomon and it was right in the desert and he, he had dug down into wells and he had aqueducts and it was all watered. You know, it had full technology, systems, systems for uh, sewage and systems for, for fresh water and one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was still there today until ISIS smashed it up. That was built by Solomon. That was on the edge of the, of the uh, Israelite empire. There was a time when they had uh, Assyrians paying them tax and Egyptians as well. I think when they were obeying God, they, you know, they, they had a, a huge empire. It says that um, all the kings of the known world were, were paying taxes to him, sending money to him. And that meant the, the Isles of the West, which, which would have been Britain. And we, and we read about the connections between all the way from Britain to uh, Phoenicia and beyond into into India. We read about that in these these Greek histories and, and these early histories that say that everything was connected up. It's just they don't call it Israelite, you know. They call it Phoenician. I think that's a you know that really fascinates me. This Phoenician Empire because they you know they managed to keep the Greeks from even going past the pillars of Hercules. And there there are some histories written of them that say they even got as far as America and were were digging mines in America. They were certainly digging mines in um, in Britain and the and the tin trade, and the, all the the Greeks supposedly got their legends from the Phoenicians. And I think there's this there's some also mention of the twelve tribes. I think Cadmus the Phoenician he wrote something about it. Do you know about that, Bill? Cadmus the Phoenician. I'm sure he's got something to do with it. Well, we can't. We don't. We only know about Cadmus the Phoenician from what Greeks after the time of Homer wrote about him. But Cadmus the Phoenician. What was also the um, father of Europa, I believe, and and an uncle of Heracles, and and they're all intertwined, right? Europa is the Phoenician, the notable Phoenician women woman of legend, whom Europe was named after, and and evidently Zeus raped her. Right, posed as a bull or something like that. I forget the entire myth, but Cadmus Phoenician 
is the one credited with bringing arts and letters to Greece. And he, along with Danos, was said at the earliest times to have come from Egypt, not from Palestine, from Egypt, and build with they left Egypt, according to Diodorus Siculus, at the same time that Moses led the Hebrews out. They left Egypt by sea with um, colonies of the same people and established colonies in, in Greece and other places, according to Hecataeus of Abdera and Diodorus Siculus. Now, among those colonies would be the um, Mycenaean people, the Mycenaean culture, which was really the Danon Greeks, that would be Danos, and the city of Thebes in Greece is another one, and another one is ancient Troy. And there were a couple of others, but they are the notable ones. Those, and the, again, Strabo and Josephus and, and Diodorus Siculus all accepted this as being historical. Those notable civilizations were all traced back to those strangers in Egypt who were with Moses, to the Hebrews. So great Greek writers, such as Diodorus Siculus, did not mind at all understanding that their European civilization had come from the Hebrews in Egypt. And this can be found right in Diodor Siculus's Library of History, book 40, I think. Or, or it might be as early as book 38, but it's in those last couple of books. It's amazing history. It really is, Bill. You think... You know, there's so much, so much of it is actually written about in the pagan histories that, that people are just unaware of and Judeo-Christians are, are completely unaware of. They don't seem to understand any of it. They think that uh, all of this is so far back and, and all it is is just written about in the Bible. I think the Jews deliberately try to hide the fact that there is corroboration of all of this elsewhere and also... I mean, we've also got records of the Spartans supposedly being descended from the tribe of Judah. That's mentioned in the book of Maccabees, and it's mentioned in Flavius Josephus, and yet no Judeo-Christians are aware of that. And it's even written down in, in the Apocrypha. It's in Maccabees. And how how could the, the tribe of the Spartans be descended from Judah unless there had been a, a migration at a, at a much earlier time, would that have been at this this time with these um, Phoenician migrations? Is is that how come the Spartans are descended from Judah? Do you think? Well, well, no. If we go back to Homer, the the, the Phoenician mig migrations were the northern tribes, right? Phoenicia properly is the land of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali from our Bible right? They were the core of the Phoenicians. The Danans took different paths. A great group of Danans went to um, Greece from Egypt and founded the, what we know as the Mycenaean culture, and they are the Greeks that fought against the Trojans and defeated and sacked and pillaged Troy, 
right? So the great um, Agamemnon and Menelaus and, and Odysseus, they were Danans. Well, Sardinia, there's two Hebrew words, Sar, which means remnant, and Dan, that give us the modern word Sardinia, which means remnant of Dan. So a portion of the tribe of Dan, or a remnant, settled in Sardinia and, and gave it its name. And inscriptions have been found in Phoenician letters that establish that, that prove that, that prove that connection. <clears throat> so the Phoenicians of Tyre were probably principally of the northern tribes of Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and the Danans took different paths and settled in different places. Well, the Spartans are Dorian Greeks. And where does that name come from? If we look at Homer, he tells us that the Dorians are on Crete. Homer describes the whole world as he saw it. Now, he's writing in the 7th century BC, but he's describing the world of the Trojan Wars, which happened in the 12th century BC, Homer is the first written um, Greek epic poetry, the earliest Greek epic poetry which we have. And he's describing the, this time from five or six hundred years before his own time, probably almost six hundred years. Well, that's the best we have from the Greeks is Homer and Hesiod, who basically agrees with Homer, and the later historians basically agree with Homer. Strabo of Cappadocia loved and respected Homer, not for the myths he, he, he recorded, but for the history and geography that underlie the myths Strabo respected. So, Homer, by all accounts, gives us an accurate depiction of the world known to the Greeks at his time, the world um, of the 12th century BC as it was understood by Greeks of the 7th century BC. Homer doesn't mention Dorians anywhere in Greece, anywhere in the north, which is where the mainstream um, academics claim that the Dorians come from. That's wrong. They didn't come from the north. Homer only mentions Dorians as being on Crete, which is an island partway between Greece and Palestine. And the Dorians, as you said, the king of the Lacedaemonians. The Lacedaemonians were a Dorian tribe who inhabited the portion of the Peloponnesus, the portion of Greece, which in which lay the Dorian city of Sparta. And about 160 BC, the king of the Lacedaemonians, who would be the king of Sparta, wrote a letter to the Onias, the high priest of the Temple of Jerusalem, professing that he understood that they were related by blood, that he was of the seed of Abraham, and that he had ancient writings which documented that. Now, we don't know what those writings were today, but that letter is repeated by Flavius Josephus, and it's also in our Book of Maccabees, Book 1, 
1 Maccabees, 1st Maccabees. I think it's in chapter 12 or 13. I, I don't remember offhand, but it's in there. And the verification letter from Onias, the high priest, back, or, or from the um, high priest of Jerusalem back to the Spartans is also in there. So th this is another um, event with two important biblical historical witnesses, or at least one of them is biblical. The other one's Flavius Josephus, the Judean. So the Dorians must have come from Dor. That's the only thing that explains the name Dorian. And the only thing that explains why Homer only had them on Crete during the time of the Trojan Wars and nowhere else. And that's because, because there's somewhere they called Dor. Dor. Somewhere called Dor on um, on the Israel coast, isn't there? Somewhere called Dor as well. I'm sorry. Is there somewhere on the um, on the Israel coast coastline that was called Dor? Dor would the... be in the ancient land of Manasseh. Yes, Manasseh. Yeah. On the and there's all sorts of archaeology proving an Israelite presence in Dor at that time. Bullet from Israelite priests and things like that. Also, um, Corinthian architecture was found at Dor in a, in, in a layer, an archaeological layer that is believed to be before the Assyrian invasions of Israel. We find Corinthian architecture in Dor. Well, the Corinthians were also Dorians. So why wouldn't their architecture be found in Dor is beyond me. So, so yes, there are many other connections between um, these Greeks and, and those Hebrews. I've done entire podcasts showing that early Greek culture was essentially Hebrew. I think Josephus also elaborates on the letter that was sent. I think he talks about a seal as well, that was sent with it. The seal was an eagle with a snake in its claws. Which yes, is, sir. Yeah, which is, it's, I mean, we still see that today, don't we? It, it's a very biblical symbol, and and that that eagle was the symbol of Dan, but the Dorians, they didn't exterminate the Danans from, from the Peloponnesus. That They basically um, enslaved them, the, the ones that remained, and and called them perioikoi, the people that dwelt around them. They they had a name for them. Perioikoi, perioikoi is those who are inhabiting your perimeter, perimeter, peripheral area. So that they acknowledged that they had um after they invaded the Peloponnesus in in their own language they acknowledged that the other tribes continued to live in, in the areas that they settled. They enslaved them. <laughs> so they <laughs> yes, they, they treated them as slaves. You say that's um, not not much different today with us going to war against one another with the Second World War and the and the First World War. I mean, this is one of the things that you know. Some people say, "Oh, the Old Testament, it, it's uh, it's always so Jewish." But I never thought that. I looked at the Old Testament and read it and thought, "Well, this is just like the people today. You know, stubborn-hearted, going to war against one another, refusing to listen to God, refusing to listen to their elders, refusing to respect their elders, 
it just seems common to me to the, to the behavior of the white race. I, you know, I don't really see much Jewish behavior in the Old Testament apart from with the Canaanites, where it tells us that the, the Canaanites were involved in usury. The Canaanites were involved in sodomy. They're involved in, in race mixing. And the, the Israelites were told to wipe them out. Yeah, you know, the, the, the Jewishness of the Old Testament is easily refuted. The Old Testament is probably the most anti-Jewish book in existence next to the New Testament. That the um, oh, Okay, so the Old Testament, but we have this group of people who start out as slaves who become liberated quite heroically and establish an agrarian culture with an agrarian calendar. And all of their feast days are agrarian feasts, first fruits, the Feast of Tabernacles. How could this be Jewish? How is this Jewish? Now, now we have, um, okay, in Scandinavian literature, we have the Swedish king on. And this is in the the um, the Havermal, I believe. The Swedish king on sacrifices Odin. Odin, he he wants to stay on his throne. He doesn't want to die, so he sacrifices one of his sons to Odin, and Odin grants him ten more years of life and and rule of his kingdom. So the Swedish king on has nine sons. Now this is in the in the Eddas. This is Germanic literature. And Odin tells him, every time you sacrifice one of your sons, I will grant you ten more years of life and rule over your kingdom. So he sacrifices eight of his sons. And he lives for 80 more years, sacrificing them one every 10 years. He lives for 80 more years and he rules for 80 more years. And finally the people of his kingdom won't let him sacrifice the last son, so he dies. So, the Swedish king An sacrificed eight of his sons out of his own greed and lust for rule. That sounds pretty Jewish. Agamemnon, the great king of the Greeks, pisses off the goddess. He, he, he makes them angry at him. So they won't give him fair winds to sail to Troy until he sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia. So Agamemnon sends for Iphigenia, his daughter, out under a pretense that she's going to become the bride of Achilles, the hero. And he lied. When, he, when she's brought to him, he sacrifices her so that he could have fair winds to sail to Troy and attack the Trojans. How Jewish is that? Then we have Abraham in the Bible. Abraham's made promises by God. And he's challenged and told to sacrifice his son Isaac, the one whom is supposed to be the embodiment of all of those promises. So Abraham is willing to do it. Abraham is willing to do it, to give up the promised son 
through which he's promised all these wonderful things and his wonderful inheritance to please his God, Abraham's willing to, to sacrifice his son. And at the last minute, he's spared. And Isaac does not get sacrificed. Which sacrifice is Jewish? The sacrifice of the Swedish king on, who's, who killed eight of his sons for 80 years rule? Or the sacrifice of Amnon, who killed his own daughter for the lust of, of attacking the Trojans? Or the sacrifice of Abraham, which was absolutely selfless. Abraham had nothing to gain by sacrificing his son, except that the thought that he's pleasing his God. And everything to lose, because that son was promised to be the heir of the world. And Abraham was willing to, sac to give that up. Abraham is the least Jewish his ideals are the least Jewish of those three examples. Abraham's the anti-Jew. The Swedish king was the most Jewish. And Agamemnon is a close second. Their sacrifices were out of selfishness. Abraham's sacrifice was out of selflessness. So these clowns like David Duke that say that the Bible's a Jewish book because there's human sacrifice in it, do they really know that Homer describes human sacrifice among the Greeks and, and that the Eddas describe human sacrifice uh, among the Germanic kings for absolutely selfish reasons? Doesn't David Duke know that? Doesn't he know how stupid he sounds? When he talks about the sacrifice of Isaac and calls it Jewish, he sounds absolutely stupid. Just to um, put that into a bit of historical context there, I think I read this in uh, Flinders Petrie book, and he said that uh, around about that time when Abraham was sacrificing his son, he said that the, the Egyptians were still engaging in human sacrifice. And after that, that they stopped. So just to put it into context, and he was saying that, um, you know, this, this was God sending out a message that he didn't want human sacrifice. Uh, I don't know whether you've, whether you've heard that before or, or whether that's something new, Bill, that the Egyptians well, well, stopped doing it. That surrounding, it is true that surrounding nations were engaging in human sacrifice, yes. I think Flinders Petrie was saying that it was, it was at that time that they stopped, which is... Uh, Quite interesting if it's if it's true. There is a uh, deeper underlying reason for Isaac's sacrifice because in the ancient world, when you placed something, when you held ownership of something, and in the ancient world the father owned his children, and you placed them on an altar to a god, whether it be a person or, or a, a a gold coin, doesn't matter. The object you place on the altar becomes the property of that God. So when Abraham placed Isaac on the altar, Isaac became the property of Yahweh. Abraham relinquished control of his son into the hands of God. Isaac is the only um, man who was sacrificed to God, who became the property of God at the request of that God. And for that reason, 
Everything in Isaac's loins belongs to Yahweh. All of Isaac's descendants belong to God. That's a symbolic meaning of the sacrifice of Isaac that's lost on, on people like David Duke that, that, that despise the Old Testament because they think it's Jewish. It's actually very Aryan in, in all of its lines of thought. The only things Jewish in the Old Testament are the things which the God of the Old Testament despises. Things like sodomy and usury and and murder and treachery and everything else that the Old Testament forbids us to engage in. Gambling and sorcery, things like that. The Old Testament's an absolutely anti-Jewish book. Is that, is that why um, Israel is referred to as Yahweh's portion? You think because of... Um, well, well, absolutely. From, from the time that Isaac was placed on the altar, everything in Isaac's loins is property of God. And that means Jacob and Esau. Of course, Esau is for a different purpose. Vessels fitted for destruction and vessels fitted for glory. Right. Absolutely. Vessels of mercy as opposed to vessels of destruction. Do you want to go into some more of this in the, in the, in the next episode, Bill? It seems like a opportune moment to uh, break off there before we start getting back into... Um, I guess we carry carry on going with it with uh, the the uh, Moabite stone and uh, the rest of the history of uh, the Is Israel in the Bible. Well, well, absolutely. We'll, we'll do a archaeology part two, which we didn't expect. I mean, we had a, a a lot of digressions this afternoon that were unexpected. I I believe they were useful. Definitely, I pray they were useful. Definitely. I very much enjoyed Sven, it. Thank you, thank you very much for being here, and, and I hope to see you in two weeks. Definitely, definitely. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me on. That's um, been very illuminating. God bless you, Bill. Praise Yahweh. God bless you, Sven. <laughs>